We thank you for today. We thank you for this time that we can gather together. Um, we thank you for this season where we can celebrate uh, that you came to earth and you were born and uh, that you lived and died to pay the penalty of our sin. And we just, uh, we do uh, pray that you would uh, help each of one of us to take a moment this morning and, and really think about um, the truth of of your advent, and um, as we look at your word, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning, and, and that we would really understand that you came as the promised king, and, and the king that uh, that we need, and, and that uh, we will see one day uh, sitting upon the throne here on earth. And we pray that um, as we read these things and, and think about them, that we would really um, make them uh, part of our life and that we would live out these truths and that we would live as though you are king of our life and that you are uh, the king overall. And, and we just pray that uh, as we are together this morning, you would bless our time and that you would help us to uh, really just understand uh, your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is great to be with you guys again this morning. To have, it was great to have an opportunity to share with you guys in our Christmas uh, sermon series here. Um, as you can see this morning, we will be uh, in Isaiah chapter 9. Um, and we will be talking about that Christ is the righteous King that was born. And as Pastor Scott introduced last week, this year as we come to the Christmas season... We want to focus on the incarnation of Christ, as we always do at this time of year. And we want to take time to look at the whole picture of Christ. And often at Christmas time, we focus on the baby in the manger, uh, because that is the time of year that we celebrate Christ coming and being born of Mary and, and being that baby in the manger. It's the story of how God the Son the second member of the Trinity, left the Father's side and entered humanity and came down to be born of a virgin. And this miracle birth would bring into the world the long-awaited Messiah, the Messiah that was promised to Israel. The, the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. And generations of God's people had been looking forward to this event. Looking forward to the coming of Christ, the One who would deliver them. And as Pastor spoke on last week, often when we think of Christ... This one who came to deliver his people. We think of the aspects or the picture of Christ that we like most. Whether it is the baby in the manger. Or the good teacher who taught his, his followers many parables and good life lessons. Or even the prophet that spoke the words of God. And all these pictures of Jesus are accurate. They are true pictures of who Christ is. They're not the complete picture. No singular aspect of Jesus is enough by itself. Jesus Christ is so much more than any of these aspects when you take them individually. We need to look at the whole picture of who Christ is. Now, was Jesus the child who was born of a virgin? God the Son come to earth to enter humanity in the form of a helpless baby? Yeah, He was. But He's so much more than that. And was Jesus... The child who grew into a man and traveled through the countryside of Galilee and Jerusalem teaching his disciples? Yes, he was. But he's so much more than that. 
And was Jesus a great prophet that spoke the very words of God? Yes, He was. But He's also so much more than that. He's all of these things. And He's so much more. Last week, as Pastor showed us, the glorious picture of Christ that we see in Revelation chapter 1. The awe-inspiring, overwhelming, glorified Christ that caused John to fall on his face as though he was dead. The one who holds the keys to death and Hades. The one who is supreme over all things. And today we will be looking at another portrayal of Jesus given to us in Scripture. And this time, we'll be looking in the Old Testament. And to be more specific, as I said, we will be in Isaiah chapter 9. And the prophet Isaiah here is writing to the people of Israel. And there are several clues surrounding this passage that will help us understand the historical events surrounding um, Israel at this time. And in the preceding and following chapters here, we see the historical events surrounding the Syro-Ephraimite War. And Israel and Syria had, according to God, had acted proudly and had attacked Judah. And so now their foes, the Assyrians, were being strengthened against them. See, chapter 8 talks about how Assyria is coming to invade. And then later in chapter 9, you see that Assyria is being strengthened and is going to overtake Israel. And we see in our passage today, in in chapter 9, verse 1 here, that they have already started to begin to take some of Israel's land. And so Israel has not completely fallen at this point, but it will happen very soon as we see in chapter 10 and following. The Assyrian army is is gathering and arriving and about to come onto the scene for the Israelites. Assyria has already flexed its muscles against Samaria, but has not yet completed the work in Israel and Judah. But in the near future, Assyria will be judged by God as well, as we see later in chapter 10. Assyria completes God's judgment against Israel, but then is judged themselves. So that is kind of the the surrounding context of what we will be talking about this morning here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And really the, the big idea of this passage is that Isaiah is writing this section to convince his listeners that God can be trusted. And that His promises for a glorious kingdom for His people will be fulfilled. Even though Isaiah knows that most of his listeners will be hardened. He, he writes that in, in, chap, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6. He writes that, that he knows Israel will be hardened in their hearts against his prophecy and against God. However, Judah must not follow the mistake in pattern of sinful pride and oppression like Israel and Assyria did. Or they will suffer the same fate. Instead, Judah should trust in God despite their oppressors for the good news that God will soon remove their enemies from Israel and Assyria. And eventually, this Messiah, the Messiah that had been promised, will reign forever over all nations and God will establish a period of justice and peace. And we will see that as we get into our passage this morning. So let's read the passage we will be covering here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. 
It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time brought into contempt in the, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. On them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see this section in Isaiah's prophecy introduces a future righteous king who will come from the line of David. And this king will bring peace to God's people. Now this was pretty significant for Israel at this time. And as we mentioned, Israel was being surrounded by the Assyrians. And they were coming, especially from the north, the land of Zebulun and, and Naphtali. And they could see what was coming. And they could see that this was not going to be a peaceful time. That their enemies were coming as the prophets were telling them to bring judgment on their land and on God's people. And this time of peace and light and joy that we see promised here are a sharp contrast to the darkness and war and sorrow that Israel had been under and were going to see as the Assyrians were coming. And this king that is promised that will bring peace is a Another sharp contrast to their current king, King Ahaz, as we see starting in, in chapter 7 and right up through into chapter 9 here. We see in chapter 7, this same Messiah is promised. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. This is the same king that is promised here in this passage. This name Emmanuel given in chapter 7 means God with us. And that is a comforting name for the Messiah that was coming for Israel. That God is with us. And here in this passage we see several more names given to this promised King. We see Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The One who will rule the nation with justice. This passage truly serves as the announcement of the birth of a new king. A significant announcement for these people. Again, these people lived under a series of different kings that came from David's line. And the announcement of a new king was a big deal for them. 
And not only that, the description of this king was something totally different than what they were used to. We see this passage is really broken down into three different sections. You see the first two verses that light will come to those living in darkness. And then the next several verses, you see that God will defeat the nation's oppressor. You see the Assyrians were coming upon Israel and that God would defeat Israel's enemies. And then the last two verses there is that a son will justly rule the Davidic kingdom. So let's go walk back through this passage and see what God, through Isaiah the prophet, is telling these Israelites. And starting in verse 1, he says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made a glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Really, this verse 1 is the conclusion of chapter 8. It closes the idea of judgment coming upon Israel. That's Chapter 8 is detailing the Assyrian invasion that was coming. And here you see Isaiah wrapping up the idea that not only have they been judged and would there be a time of contempt, but there's also hope. God was bringing hope for these people. This this verse is really a transition to move the reader from dark, the darkness and distress of chapter 8 and to look forward to the light and hope of a new era that was coming. It mentions her who was in anguish, and this refers to Israel, the, the people of Israel who have been under God's discipline. It talks about the former time. Isaiah's vision projects his thought of the tragic present as if it was already past. Isaiah is looking forward to this promised king and and already thinking of the present distress as in the past. He talks about the land that was brought into contempt. This means they were humiliated and defeated. This land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the northern regions of the promised land of Israel. They were the first to come under attack by these foreign invaders who approached through the north the fertile crescent as we see in 2 Kings chapter 15. But also they are the first to see this glorious new era. And it talks about Galilee of the nations that is in this northern land. And as we see in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, where does He come? Where does He come to? If you look in Matthew chapter 4, Speaking of Jesus, it says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, meaning Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. The same Galilee that is mentioned here in Isaiah. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, here in chapter 9, would be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, and on them the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see who this promised light, who this promised king is going to be. 
And in summary, this verse predicts that the least likely area of Israel, the far northern section that was most oppressed at the time, and most influenced by pagans, will in some way be honored by God when He sends in this new light, this new promised hope in the future. Those who were currently dwelling in darkness, they would have the light shown on them. The Messiah was coming to Galilee. You see that in chapter 2, the, the contrast of those who walk in darkness, they, they have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. That brings us to the next section here, verses 3-5. through five, where that, that God will defeat the nation's oppressor. Consistent with this metaphor of light is the mood of joy and rejoicing. Starting in verse 3, it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, You see two illustrations here of, of great joy that are used to compare the people's future happiness. The people will re- rejoice and jump for joy like they do when a great harvest is brought in. Or, when they observe hordes of goods brought home from troops that had invaded a foreign land. This is going to be a time of great joy. These people are joyful. It is clear that this coming king would bring this joy, this great rejoicing. And then verse 4, it continues, For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And using God's great victory over Midian, you see that in Judges chapter 6 and 7 as a comparison. Isaiah predicts that this coming king will shatter and break the oppressive yoke of their enemy. This burden that Israel was facing because of their enemies, it would be broken. Just like on the day of Midian. He uses the the yoke or the staff or the, the rod. This is used to communicate a serious oppression. We'll see, you see that later in chapter 10. And they were instruments used to dominate people and force people to work physically. Or they could be used as metaphors to describe a heavy burden put on people through extreme taxation or a dominating rule. And you see, this great burden that Israel was under would be lifted when this king comes to establish his kingdom. See, continued in verse 5, it says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The burning of boots and bloody clothes of enemy soldiers signified a significant victory in the war where spoils were dedicated to God and military equipment was set on fire. That's how Israel celebrated their victories in war. And although this may usher in a time of peace without war, and you see that in Isaiah chapter 2, the focus of this promise is simply on the utter defeat of the enemy. That this king was going to win. This king is going to defeat the enemy. This promised king was going to bring victory and deliverance. Israel would be delivered from their oppression. But it doesn't say when, does it? 
This is just a promise that these things will happen. We know that when Jesus came, many people assumed that He was there to deliver the victory. That Jesus was here. The the Messiah was here. So now Israel was going to defeat their enemies and He would reign. They thought the Messiah was there to deliver a military or political victory. But we know that was not the case. The Messiah had come, but He has not yet crushed the earthly enemies of Israel. Israel rejected their Messiah. Christ is not yet reigning on His earthly throne. That is still to come. But we do see this promise here in Isaiah that this King will rule, rule and this King will reign and defeat their enemies and lift their oppression. We see this brings us to our classic incarnation passage, our, our classic Christmas passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And we see all these things that are promised. That there will be great joy and there will be this great light that will come into the land. And the yoke of their burdens would be lifted and every boot and garment from this war will be burned. Why? We see in verse 6, 4. This 4 is to explain why all these things will happen. 4. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Why would there be great joy? Why would there be light and peace? Because the child is born, and the son is given. This initial announcement that a child will be born is further explained in the next phrase that a son is given. And that is to the people of Judah. Judah has been given this child and this son. The second line emphasizes that this is a work of God's gracious giving, not just a coincidence. It isn't just coincidental that this king would be born. It's that God gave this king. God gave Judah the king they were waiting for. Again, it doesn't predict the time or the date when this would happen. Isaiah was written quite a while before Jesus actually came. Probably over a thousand years before Christ came. But this this king is promised. This nation that was being oppressed and judged by the Assyrians. Their deliverer was coming. And it says the government will be upon his shoulders. This child, this son that is promised. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will be king. His people's shoulders are delivered when this king's shoulders accept the burden of this role. This Davidic ruler, he, he, presumably God, will call His name. The saying that God will call His name. It's not a passive phrase here. It's not that His name will be called. It is that God will call His name. And they list 
four different names that He will be called. And that is the first one, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor combines the idea of something wonderful or extraordinary or miraculous with the skill of giving advice or making plans or counseling. God is the source of all miraculous events. And His plans are the wisest counsel to follow. So that is what we see in this this King that is promised that He will be a wonderful Counselor. And these unspecified plans, they will be subject to later revelation. They will be later revealed in Scripture. Or when this King is established. But He will be a wonderful Counselor. The next name given is Mighty God. This, this title is repeated in chapter 10, verse 21, and it refers to the Lord Himself. And that establishes its meaning. That Isaiah is saying, this King is God. This King will be God. Mighty God is a divine name. And it is similar to the name Ezekiel. Ezekiel means God will be my strength. That's what the name Ezekiel means. And to this name, Mighty God, if you supply the verb to it, it means God is mighty. Or God is a mighty warrior. That's the, the name given here for this king that is promised. No other person has ever had God's name. And God is never called by a human name like Moses or Abraham or David or Jeremiah. So there must be something very special about this promised king, this promised deliverer, this child that will be born. The next name is, is a little bit of a curious one. It's, it's Everlasting Father. And this is an interesting title to include for Jesus, the promised Messiah. It is possible to translate it as a noun, like Everlasting Father, or as a sentence like, My Father is Everlasting, or the Father of Eternity. There's, there's many ways to translate that, that phrase, but Father is a relatively rare way of describing God in the Old Testament. There's a few times where it happens, but it's really not, not something that was very common in the Old Testament. And this probably is, is an attempt to avoid other pagan uh, traditions of, of God-bearing children that were human. But in any case, calling God Father was, was somewhat rare in the Old Testament. And it's also an ra- even rarer way of describing a king. Although sometimes the Israelites, or the Israelites themselves were frequently called God's children. This king will be everlasting. Everlasting is a title that does not apply to any other human ruler except the one promised to David, the one who will rule on his throne forever. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with the Davidic covenant, that David is promised that his line will be established on the throne of Israel forever, and he will have an offspring that will reign forever. Since verse 7 here refers to a person ruling forever on David's throne, this everlasting father... This is the same ruler. And when the people requested a king back in, in 1 Samuel, they wished to replace the judges that they had with a more permanent monarchy or, or a more permanent role of king. And this king 
Although the kings that they received were not what they were hoping for, as Samuel had warned them, this king to come would be the true fulfillment of what they were longing for. And again, this, this title here of Father, Everlasting Father, it speaks to the concern, care, and discipline of this coming king. That this king would be a father figure to his people. The last name given here is Prince of Peace. And it's a less controversial term because every king wanted to bring peace to their people. Peace implies a, an end of war. And it's reminiscent of this ideal peace described early here in Isaiah chapter 2 that would be coming in the kingdom of God. It is also comparable to the promise that David received when he received the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. That God's people would not be oppressed again and that they will have rest from their enemies. See in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. This child, this son, this was clearly the promised Messiah. The promised eternal Davidic king. God was keeping His promise. So many years ago that He promised David. And after disappointing king after disappointing king, God is keeping His promise of this eternal king that would bring peace and would deliver His people. God was keeping His promise. And we see here in, in verse 7, some more details of this king and in his reign. We see four different things about the government that this king will establish. It says, of the, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And first, when this new son, this new child, when he rules, he will limitlessly expand his influence and create peace without end. You also see some clues as to when this king will reign. Now, we know there's been a lot of time that have passed since this happened, but or this was predicted, but we haven't seen an eternal king yet. Not on earth. We haven't seen Christ ruling on His throne yet. So we know this is a future kingdom. This promise implies that no one will be able to successfully oppose this king's authority or undermine the positive effects of his government. So such a promise strongly implies that Isaiah is, is talking about a final eschatological kingdom. The, the kingdom that will come when Christ comes back and reigns on earth and ushers His people into the eternal state. It says, on the throne of David and over His kingdom. And this, this second point is that this ruler will reign on the throne of David. He will reestablish the kingdom of David. This pledge certifies beyond a shadow of a doubt that this text refers to the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The promise that God gave David. God doesn't give up on His promises. This promise will be fulfilled. Thirdly, it says, with justice and righteousness. 
He will establish it and uphold it in justice and righteousness. His method of ruling this king will be based upon the principles of justice and righteousness. This is the righteous king. His kingdom will be described by justice and righteousness. This fact is consistent with the emphasis on justice in in the following chapters in, in 10 and 11. And it contrasts, again, the behavior of the kings that they were used to. Judah's present king, King Ahaz, was not a just king. The people of Israel knew injustice. The kings of Israel were not just kings. And when this king reigns, true justice will be established. This will be true justice on God's terms. You see all around us today, people cry for justice because they know something's wrong. And it's true, we need justice. But it's justice by God's terms. Justice established on truth. It has to be. Otherwise, it's not justice. The promised king will reign in true justice. How often do we see the world cry out for justice for something and then come to find out later on that that wasn't actually the truth? Justice must be established in truth. And and this king will reign in true justice, in righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. This fourth point is that this Davidic ruler, this king, will reign forever. And this is exactly what God promised David. These descriptive parameters, titles, time frame, and references all point to the Davidic promises and they rule out any current king that Israel had seen. This king was coming. And they would know it when they saw it. This king was nothing like the kings that they had seen. This king would reign in righteousness and justice. And then lastly, Isaiah leaves off this passage by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How much more sure can you be of something than if God says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this? Isaiah is offering assurance to his listeners concerning the fulfillment of this promise. And simply stated, God will do it. With unassailable zeal, determination, and passion, God will fulfill this promise. God will concentrate His efforts on this marvelous deed. Isaiah's listeners can be absolutely sure that this will happen. This omnipotent, sovereign God will stand behind the fulfillment of this plan. The Lord will do it. You can be sure. So although Isaiah had promised that God would judge this people, that God would bring in the Assyrians to, to take Israel out of their land and to, to bring God's judgment upon them, he gives them hope that this king is coming. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And this child, this son, would be king. And He would reign forever in justice and in righteousness. 
So as we consider this passage at, at this time of year, this Christmas season, we consider how Christ came to earth to be incarnate in the flesh, to come and be born as a baby. Let us again remember the complete picture of Christ. Don't forget, He came as a king. He came to be king. And again, the big idea of this text is that God can be trusted and that His promises for a glorious kingdom for His people will be fulfilled. Don't forget that last line of this passage, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This will happen. Again, we like to think of Jesus as the picture that we like to, to see, whether it's the child in the manger or the good teacher or even the prophet that spoke God's words. But don't forget the whole picture. Again, was Jesus the child born of a virgin? The one who came to earth in the form of a baby? Yes, He was. But He's so much more than that. And was Jesus the child that grew up into a man who traveled throughout the countryside of Galilee and Jerusalem and taught His disciples? Yes, that was Jesus. But He's so much more than that. Was Jesus God's prophet that spoke the very words of God? Yes, He was. Jesus was the greatest prophet. But He's so much more than that. Jesus is King. And the King has been born. And that's what we celebrate this time of year. That the King is born. He is all these things and so much more. He is the King that was promised. He is the Messiah that will deliver His people. He is the One who fulfills all the promises of the Davidic ruler on the earthly throne. He will bring great light, as we saw in this passage. He will bring unknown joy. He will lift the, the yoke of Israel's burdens. He is the King who will defeat the enemies. He is the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to His reign. He is the King. The King that was promised. The King that will deliver His people. But He's so much more than that. He is our Savior. He is the only one that is the answer to our problem of sin. Not only was this child born, not only was this son given, he grew up and he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. Our sin separates us from God. And we have no way to solve our sin problem. But Jesus does. Jesus lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. The wages for our sin is death. God demands that from us. If you have sinned, the penalty for your sin is death. And we can't pay that. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. He lived that perfect life so that, we, so that He could die that atoning death for us in our place, so that He could rise victorious over sin and death and provide salvation to those who believe. 
And the only way into the kingdom of this great king, this promised king, this king that would fulfill all that was promised to Israel, the child that was born, the son that was given, the only way into his kingdom is through the death that he died in our place. You can be part of his kingdom, but only if you repent of your sins and believe in the atoning work of Christ. And that that alone provides you this salvation. This is the only way into the kingdom of this great king. If you'd like to know more about this salvation, please come and talk to me or Pastor Scott or anyone else really. And we would be so happy to help you understand more about the Gospel and how to trust Christ for salvation. The King has come. The King was born. And although He didn't establish His kingdom on earth yet, He's coming back. And when He does, for many people it will be too late. Once He comes back, there's no more chance to enter His kingdom. You need to repent and believe now in what Christ has done for you. And why He came to be born of a virgin. And to grow up and live the perfect life. And to die the death that we couldn't die. You need to trust in Christ. That He is the only way for salvation. That He is coming back to reign as King and to reign over His people and deliver them finally from sin and death. In closing, allow me to leave you with these thoughts from Pastor John MacArthur. He says it this way. He says, A king is coming and he has the right to rule. He came once and offered his kingdom and men nailed him to a cross. But he'll be back. He'll be back to bring his kingdom and it won't be offered next time. It will be brought and established in the earth. So is Christ your king? If not, you're missing a crucial part of the complete picture of Christ. Don't just hold on to the picture of Jesus that you like. He's so much more than that. Christ is King and He is coming back. Make sure today that you are part of His kingdom. Because next time He comes back, His kingdom won't be offered. It will be established. Make sure today that you are part of His kingdom. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank You for this truth. We thank You for the fact that You did come and You came to die the death that we couldn't die and live the life that we couldn't live. We thank You that You are King and that although You haven't established Your kingdom on earth yet, that we have the hope of that promise. and That we know You are coming back. We thank You for this truth and I pray that it would really 
affect each one of us and, and speak to our hearts. Help us to live in rea- the reality that you are the king and that you are coming back to establish your kingdom. We thank you for this truth. We pray that you would help us to take it with us as we go about our way this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.